Well, people of God in Christ, the passage from Psalm 18 before us this morning is uh, one that serves well to, uh, to teach us something about how to study God's Word. Uh, specifically, it gives us a, a kind of lesson on how to outline a passage of Scripture. Someone might say, but that's your job, Pastor, not mine. Uh, and that's true. A, a significant aspect of sermon writing is outlining the text, uh, finding the, the natural progression and the main point of the verses being preached. And, and that is the work of the preacher. But it can teach us all to read and study and understand God's word if, if we are looking for the outline of the text. Have you ever taken this approach to reading and studying God's Word? As as we open God's Word, we ought to do so with the expectation that God will indeed speak to us in the passage uh, that we're reading. And, And we shouldn't be looking for some random message from God, but rather the the one message that comes from the text. Here is a reformed principle for interpreting Scripture. Exegesis before application. In other words, what did the author intend to say by writing what he wrote, granted by the Holy Spirit, but but what did the biblical writer mean to say when he wrote what he wrote? And then, how does that message, that lesson, apply to me in my life and perhaps in my current situation in which I am seeking guidance from the Lord. So that being said, let me, let me point out uh, what I noticed as I studied this passage, Psalm 18, 16 to 24. First of all, I noticed that here the psalmist begins to speak of the salvation that God provided him. He is writing this psalm in response to an experience of God's deliverance of him in his life. In other words, he is giving testimony to the saving work of God in his life. And so, as we said last time, he he doesn't hide the fact that he was in deep trouble. And he doesn't hide the fact that he was lost and miserable and helpless and otherwise in an utterly humiliating moment. We need to do the same. In fact, to some degree, that's how we should worship each Lord's Day. Granted, when we worship on the Lord's Day, we are in a corporate setting, so that our corporate, united, main focus in worshiping God is not the help that God gave one person on a math test this week or, or the extra finances that God somehow provided another person, nor the solution to some personal relationship problem that came for someone else in the past week. We, we ask for those things as we take prayer items, but that's not our main focus. The corporate, united, main focus each Lord's Day is the good news that we are on our way to heaven and not to hell, and that that is guaranteed by Christ and His merits for our salvation. But what I notice further as as I look at 
just these several verses is that they speak, first of all, of rescue, God's rescue of the psalmist. The passage begins to speak of God's rescue in verse 16, but in verse 17 it says outright, He rescued me. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. So there's the confession, the, the humiliation. They were more, far more than I could handle. And this is what we need to say of the devil and of our own flesh. They are too mighty for me. But then skip down to verse 19. And what do we hear again? He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So, so by way of... Of, uh, or, or by the repeated reference to the rescue of God at the beginning of this passage, and again in verse 19, our first point needs to be the rescue of God. But then it happens again in the, in the next set of verses, verses 20 through 24. In, uh, in verse 20, the psalmist writes, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And then in verse 24, what do we hear again? But so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Therefore, the third point, see what happened to the second one? I'm, I'm getting there. But the third point then of this sermon will be the reward of God. And then comes the second point. And, and where does it come from? It comes from the pastor's prerogative. Uh, they say that it's a, a woman's prerogative to change her mind. Uh, but here's the, pat, the preacher's prerogative to find the special emphasis in the midst of the text. And I trust that this is by the Spirit's leading that we need to pause in the middle and uh, at the end of verse 20 to consider the delight of God as, as the second point and to include the delight of God into what we might call the equation of our salvation. And we will do so in order that we might know fully, or how fully, we have been saved by God's delight. So the first point, uh, the rescue of God. Here, uh, Here with the word rescue, we have one of several words that we use to refer to the salvation of God. Again, in verse 17, he rescued me uh, from my strong enemy. In verse 19, he brought me out to a broad place. He rescued me. Another word of salvation, uh, as we might call it that, is delivered. We see that in the heading to the psalm, in fact. Um, And I think the word delivered uh, we would agree, is, is, is a synonym. It means the same thing as God rescuing his people for their salvation. The Apostle Paul uh, cries out in his struggle with sin, and he asks, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers, Thanks be to God, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to rescue us from the present evil age. And Hebrews 2, verses 
14 and 15 says of Christ that He has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Rescue, deliverance. This is what salvation is, even and especially in its ultimate sense. You can be rescued from bad guys trying to enter your home late at night. Uh, you can be rescued from a life of loneliness when along comes that, that young man or that young woman whom you will marry. Uh, you can be rescued in a, in a lot of different ways. But even as we hear the psalmist's testimony to how God rescued him, we hear as well how God rescues all his people in Christ. So, First, the exegesis, right? What, what was David writing about? Uh, the heading to Psalm 18 tells us uh, a psalm of David, the servant, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when God delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so he wrote this psalm to follow. So that's the, in, in one sense, that's the exegesis done for us. Not all psalms are, are, are so very clear, but what we need to see as, as a great help to us is that God always saves in the same way. God always saves in the same way because He always remains the same God. He does not change. And neither really is there any essential difference between David being threatened by his enemies and the threat of the evil one and of our own flesh to us. In the end, Psalm 18 is a psalm of salvation for us, one that we can use, whether reading and declaring it in our personal or family worship time or or by singing Psalm 18 together as we gather on the Lord's Day to remember that God has rescued us. So even as God saved David from the hand of all his enemies and and from the hand of Saul, so God has saved us from Satan out out of our utter weakness and helplessness. Notice that the psalmist emphasizes his own weakness in the verses we're looking at. And and previously he made clear his helplessness in these words. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And now in verse 16 and 17 it says, He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. And in verse 18, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. There is a sense in which faith, at least a deep, mature faith, is not born in our hearts until we confess until we can confess our sin, even our personal sin, as our calamity. There is, of course, the faith of a child, a child who knows that when he tells a lie, when he talks back to his parent, when he is unkind to his sister, that he needs Jesus to be his Savior. 
to forgive him of his sins as a child. Praise God when our children exhibit such faith. But that's the faith of a child, surely sufficient for a child. But, but then we are meant to study. That's the importance of knowing that we are disciples, we are students of Christ. We are called to grow in our knowledge of God's word. And, and so we come to understand even the calamity of sin. The consequence of sin is not just shame that I, that I feel bad about myself. The consequence of sin is, is not just the fear of a parent's displeasure and discipline. The consequence of sin is death and hell forever. The consequence of sin is calamity. And how does God rescue us? Verse 16 says, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. So He sent. And, and this should stand out to us if, if we're paying attention because what we, what we heard last time is that God Himself came. Verse 9 says, He, speaking of God Himself, He bowed the heavens and He came down. Verse 10 makes it clear. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. And now He says, He sent from on high. Even as He says, He took me and drew me out of many waters. So how do we understand this? It is quite curious. Did God Himself come or did He send And the answer, of course, is both. As we recognize the prophetic nature of the Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, here we see the sending of the Son by the Father. Uh, Here we see the sending and the coming of Christ sent by the Father and yet coming as God Himself to save us. We see a similar thing in in Psalm 24, and I want to spend just a little bit of time in Psalm 24 as well, because it's it's very much parallel, and it trains us to to understand how we can see Christ so clearly in the Psalms. So we see a similar thing in Psalm 24, and, and we need to look for this in the Psalms. When the text switches from the One to God Himself, Psalm 24 asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? The answer is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, the one who can stand in the the holy place, in the very presence of God, is, is the one who is without sin. Now, on one hand, it that's a call for us to strive for, for holiness in our lives. Do we want to be holy in the sight and presence of God? I would hope we do. But who can do that? Sinners that we are. And so there's a, there's a shift in Psalm 24. Uh, to put it another way, there, there, there's a switch from law to gospel in verse 7 where it is made clear that it's God Himself who is coming into the presence of God. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And verse 8 makes it clear, who is the King of glory? 
And that's not my question. That's the question of the text. Who is the king of glory? Who are we talking about? Who is the one who is worthy to come into the very presence of God? Only the Lord himself is worthy to come into the very presence of the Lord. And what sense does that make? You, you either have to accuse the text of not making sense. And of course, there are plenty of people who so accuse or you have to read Scripture as a whole and, and see that this is speaking prophetically of Christ, even of His ascension into heaven. He is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He is the one who did not lift up His soul to what is false. He is the one who did not swear deceitfully. And so He is the one who has received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so Psalm 24, verse 6 says, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In other words, here's the gospel in Psalm 24, that those who seek Christ, which is to say those who follow him as their disciples, they are such as Christ. From him they receive blessing and righteousness. For their salvation. So I give you Psalm 24 as, uh, as seconding the motion. I just got back from Synod, so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of motions and, and seconds to motions. Psalm 24 seconds the motion, so to speak, um, that I'm making that we should read Psalm 18 in the same way. He came, but he came as he sent. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to save, even as God sent Christ, his divine Son, to rescue us from our sins. And as he comes to save, as he sins to save, He saves us not by assisting, not by helping us to save ourselves. No, He saves us out of our utter weakness and our utter helplessness. God always saves in the same way. He saves to the uttermost. That's how it was for David, and that's what salvation is for us. As Paul says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God raised us up in Christ Jesus. And this then to help us understand how to read the psalmist when he writes in verse 19 now, He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. We really do need to see the delight of God that God delights to save His people. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. Uh, He doesn't save because He made a rash promise and, oh well, uh, now I guess He has to do it. God delights to save. The question, of course, is why does He delight to save His people? And the next verse, verse 20, even seems to say that God delights in saving His people when His people deserve to be saved. The psalmist writes in verse 20, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. 
How should we understand this? First, we need to do our exegesis. Uh, we need to see that, that in this particular situation, David was being falsely accused. He was being attacked, not because he had done something wrong. Again, when we consider the fuller context, we know that God had chosen David to be king. And those who were attacking him were attacking him because they knew that God had spoken, uh, that God had chosen David over Saul to be king of Israel. And so as David was uh, just seeking to answer the call of God to be king of Israel, he, he was fighting off attacks, not just against him, but attacks that were really against the will of God. And so David was able to say, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. The reward of God. That's, that's uh, going to be the third point, but there's a bit more to say here because the picture of Christ comes to us again. Unlike David, Christ was righteous. His hands were clean, not just on a certain occasion or in a particular situation, but throughout his life. And so we see why God the Father delighted in His Son at the baptism of Jesus. We hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I speak to earthly fathers to ask you, do you, do you tell your children that you're proud of them? Uh, you should. When, when, when they are worthy of your pride, tell them, I'm, I'm proud of you for this. You don't, of course, tell them that you're proud of them when they've been disobedient and they need to be punished. But, but when they do well, are you not proud of them? And if you are, then tell them, because it's the same thing here. Jesus submits to being baptized. Jesus was doing his Father's will, stepping into the place of the sinful people of God, and so that his Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. God is delighting in his son. Again, in the transfiguration of Jesus, we hear the, the voice from heaven again. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Once again, God was delighting in his son, the son of God was continuing the work of the father so far, at least in perfect obedience to the father's great delight in him. But it wasn't, you see, until the death of Jesus that the son became perfectly obedient. Because Jesus had made it clear in his teaching that the father had called upon him to go to the cross in the place of his sinful people and so it wasn't until the suffering of Jesus and the death of Jesus that the Father was fully pleased. And it was the resurrection of Jesus, you see, that was the Father's final declaration of delight in his Son. As God raised Jesus from the grave, from death unto life, even eternal life, and even the place he now holds at the right hand of the Father, so God the Father declared of God the Son, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased.
In the moment, in the immediate situation of his affliction, David was innocent. His hands were clean. He wasn't being chased down by men more righteous than him. He was being pursued because of his righteousness. And God rescued him because he delighted in him. But in the final analysis, God's delight to save doesn't come from the person being saved unless we're talking about Christ. And given that God sent Christ to save us while we were yet sinners, we must see that the delight of God to save sinners is purely by His grace. Dear sinner, dear believer in Jesus Christ, God delights in you. His delight in you is by grace. He has merely chosen to delight in you. You cannot say, my hands are clean. You cannot speak of any righteousness of your own. But as you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then such is the evidence that God delights in you and that He has delighted in you from the foundations of the world. And so we come now to the reward of God, a point that we have already started and only need to clarify. We Uh, Do we understand that our salvation through Christ is a reward granted us? Do we understand that salvation is by works? Salvation must be earned. And you might say, what? That's not true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there's the key, in Christ alone. The grace of God comes to us through Him. Faith itself is the gift of God through Christ. Christ has earned the reward. So yes, salvation is earned. It was earned for us by Christ. Salvation is by works. But the works are those that Christ accomplished for us. And there is a reward for obedience. But the obedience is Christ. And the reward is that which Christ has earned for us. The psalmist writes, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. Again in verse 24, Sir, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. But what David refers to in that unique, specific experience is what Christ can say even now at the right hand of the Father. Christ can claim, and he does claim, at the right hand of the Father, that his Father has rewarded him according to his perfect, lifelong, full, and complete obedience. Even unto his death on the cross, Christ was obedient And he was obedient for us. So Christ has his reward. As he was obedient, so he was raised up from the dead. So he was seated at the right hand of the Father, and this was his reward. The reward that he earned. But here's the gospel. Here's the connection to us. What does, uh, what, what, what does that have to do with, with me? How does his reward become mine? The answer is by faith. 
And this is God's plan of salvation, that, that Christ was sent by the Father for our salvation, that Christ earned for us what we cannot earn, that Christ did what he did to earn his reward, but it's the reward that he earned for us and that he shares with us as we come to understand this and as we put our trust in him for salvation. Should we speak of Christ's salvation? Yes, God saved him. God the Father saved the Son. He raised him up from the dead. Should we call it God's salvation? Yes, it was God's plan of salvation to give his Son, to live, to suffer, and to die, and to be saved by his resurrection. But brothers and sisters, let us not fail, and let us not be slow to call it our salvation. Praise be to God for Psalm 18. Praise be to God for the events in history accomplished by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But praise be to God for what it means. It means our salvation. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. You and I can't say that, but Christ can. And even as the Lord has dealt with Christ according to his righteousness, so you and I have salvation as we but trust in him. Amen. Please pray with me. These are grand and glorious things, O God. And they reveal such a a glorious wisdom that you display to bring glory to yourself even as you are so good to us. Help us to grow in our understanding of the salvation you have provided us. Certainly may we at least have the the faith of a child to say Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but may we May we grow in, our, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we, be, may we grow in our amazement. May we grow in our wonder. And may we grow thereby in our joy and in our thankfulness for Jesus and for our salvation in him. In his name we pray. Amen.